Meet Anna. She has IBS, fatigue, and anxiety, and just really doesn't feel well. She was also diagnosed with Hashimoto's several years ago. She's done her rounds with many regular doctors, but unfortunately, like many of us, came out empty-handed with no real solutions or answers. She started to research and saw how much diet played a role in all of the conditions that she was dealing with, so she really wanted to make changes. But she was also so confused because there are like 15 different diets out there. Everywhere she looked, on social, podcast, books, a new diet was touted for autoimmunity or for IBS or for fatigue. And while she was so excited to start making changes, she didn't know which was actually best for her. And that is when she came to see me because she didn't want to keep guessing. I was excited to dig in and explore with her because I know how overwhelming and confusing it can be. But also, even though it often seems mysterious, there is a way to figure out what is best to help solve the diet overwhelm. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. You just heard about Anna's struggles and her confusion about all of the diets out there, and that just made her struggles worse. Join me on the show today to talk much more about this is Lisa Grew. Lisa is a functional nutritionist and a certified autoimmune coach. She's also the author of the just released book, Food Frame. Diet is a four-letter word, and this is a comprehensive guide You're using functional nutrition guidelines to help readers identify the root causes of various health issues and then eat according to their health status for healing. Lisa, you are the perfect person to bring on for this episode, and I am so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Of course. Now, I think at this point, we can all agree that what we eat is the foundation for everything, but it can really make your head spin when we think about all of the different diets that are out there. So I don't blame anyone for being confused because there's a lot to be confused about. Now, Lisa, if you had to guess, how many diets do you think are out there right now? Oh gosh, there's got to be hundreds, maybe thousands of diets. I mean, there's just cultures have diets and religions have diets and and medical facilities have diets. There's there's hundreds, maybe thousands. Now, in your opinion, what do you think are the most popular ones right now? So great question, because that's why I wrote Food Frame is I highlighted the most popular diets that really fit almost all health statuses. And my methodology called Food Frame is that we do eat according to our health status. That's where we thrive. That's where we our, our health becomes optimized is when we eat for our health status. So l- let's back up and talk about the word diet. And, and the reason I use the uh, subtitle diet is a four-letter word is because it has such bad connotations. You know, when you say diet, you think restriction and deprivation and starvation. And I 
um, I don't believe in diets. We all have to eat. This is our fuel source. And we need to know exactly how to eat to optimize our health, to, to be vital and, and, and energetic and, and function. It's which diet types or which diet or eating lifestyles is what I use. I usually use that term because instead of the word diet, eating lifestyles is really what diet, the word diet is supposed to mean. But it's gotten this real big connotation from you know, the 80s when we were all on diets of starvation and deprivation. So we're not talking about starvation or deprivation at all. I really firmly believe that you should eat when you're hungry and not when you're not. And I believe that weight loss is a side effect of wellness. So if you're not losing weight and you're trying, something's off and look at the root causes. So I developed Food Frame because I believe that we should be eating according to our health status. And I cover six major diet types, one being paleo, keto, vegetarian or vegan, low lectin, low FODMAP, and autoimmune protocol, AIP. Mm-hmm. And what I believe is you start out with my detox, my RGN detox, because you clean out the liver and you clean out the organs and the blood so that you can detoxify all those toxins that live in your fat cells and fat tissues so that the organs can now work optimally. Yes, you'll lose weight, but it's not a weight loss plan, but it's so that the body can move optimally. And then once you complete that two week uh, course of detoxifying while eating, um, then you eat according to your health status. So I break down which diet type is right for each person. That's great. And I'm so excited to dive into that. Now, just in case someone is not familiar, when you say health status, what exactly do you mean? Um, Do you mean that based on if they have, say, an autoimmune disease versus another disease, or is there anything else that can help people identify what their health status is? Yeah. So it's it's what your, your current um, health is, right? So if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic or insulin resistant, we have blood sugar dysregulations. We need to eat according to that. Um, if you have autoimmune disease, as you had mentioned, if you have um, SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, or you have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome or irritable bowel disease, you should be eating according to that. So there are different things that we do and we eat according to what where you are currently. Now it can change. I hope it does change if you're diabetic that we can reverse that diabetes and then we no longer um, we have a different health status. So you can eat a little bit differently. But each diet type is different. And in the book, I write who it's best for and who's best to avoid this. Oh, and this is, I think, so important for people to know. So I think that's going to be so enlightening for people when they read the book. But let's talk about that a little bit more. And I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into each diet. And in case someone's not familiar, you could tell them a little bit about what the diet entails and the type of status that it might be better for. So let's start with paleo. It's been around a while. And you know, I think it's something that people are, for the most part, familiar with. But For those that are not, what is included in the paleo diet? And I would love to hear some of the pros, but also some of the cons, right? Because there's there's both sides to everything. Yeah. And I love that you want to start off with that diet because that this is the one that has the broadest appeal. This is really, if I had to pick one diet and say, you know what, you're gonna do great with this one diet, it would be the, the paleo diet type because it is easy to follow. You know, it's referred to as the caveman diet because it really focuses on our our mechanics, right? What were we born to eat? And it turns out way back in the beginning of time, we were eating animal protein. We were eating a variety of vegetables 
any way we wanted them, except for we didn't have any deep fryers, of course. Mm-hmm. And then there's some sweet potato and yams for some carbohydrates and then good fats, really good fats, like olives and nuts and seeds and eggs. And it really takes out the legumes that came later, the grains that came later and um, sugar processed foods, lots of alcohol, things like that. But it does focus on quality. So as we ate way back in the day, we were eating really good quality. We didn't have uh, pesticides and herbicides and and GMOs in those days. So we ate very good quality um, that our machinery, that our, our, our mechanics could handle. This is what we use to digest. And we they're easy to, to eat. Uh, foods become so complicated with the invention of manufacturing and dyes, chemicals, preservatives, additives, and all the toxins that we have been approved of, um, 86,000, just to name a few, um, over 3,000 of which we can eat. So we didn't have those complications. We didn't have that chemical or toxic load in those days. And so we just ate simply. And it's a little bit of fruit, but basically it really focuses on decreasing systemic inflammation and increasing good gut health. So it's good for people with blood sugar issues, but it's good for really anybody, anybody with inflammation, it's really good for, and anybody who wants to just stay regulated. Great. Now, are there any cons to this? Any negatives? Is there anyone that maybe it's not good for? You know, this one I would probably say is really good for everybody. It's good for your skin. It's good for blood sugar. It's good for blood pressure, cardiovascular health, systemic inflammation, weight loss. It's really good for energy. There really isn't anyone that shouldn't do this. They they wouldn't be in danger if they did this. I know that strict vegans would um, not do great with this because of the, uh, the, the animal protein in it, but they could absolutely follow it without uh, the animal protein. So there really isn't anybody this is not good for. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Now, what about a ketogenic diet? Because that takes it a whole step further. Tell us about that. Yes. So the ketogenic diet known as keto is when we change our fuel source from carbohydrates, which is what we do now. Uh, we use our carbohydrates or, or sugars that create uh, energy, right? That's what we make. Our pancreas pumps out insulin it drives it into the cell and glycogen into the cell. And then our mitochondria makes energy. That's what we use for fuel. Um, when you go on the ketogenic diet, you're changing your metabolic state to go into a state of ketosis so that you're using fat for fuel instead of carbohydrates. So we burn fat for fuel. And that means that we need to continue to stay in a state of ketosis. And so in order for it to be effective, so you have to eat 70 or more of your percentage of your diet, 70 to 80%, let's say, of your diet should be in good fats. They don't even have to be good quality fats. That's a little bit of the issue I have with this diet type, but you have to maintain ketosis. So you need to be eating lots of fats. You can have some animal protein. And a lot of people can sometimes refer to this diet as the animal protein diet because it takes care, you know, animal protein has no carbohydrates. So when it has some fat and it has protein, you're having a very little bit of vegetables, you're having low carb vegetables and, you know, you're non-starchy. And, but it's tricky because you, you really have to keep your net carbs to probably less than 20 grams a day. So that's little, right? Yeah, that's very, very, very little. 
so you really have to be very cognizant of staying in ketosis and eating lots of cheese and eggs and bacon and animal protein. The trick here is getting enough fiber. We find that to be very challenging with keto, but this, the ketogenic diet is really good for people with blood sugar dysregulation. If you're diabetic, you, you'd probably do great on ketosis, being in ketosis and on the keto diet. This is not good for somebody who has trouble digesting fats. So if you've had your gallbladder removed, this is not for you. If you know that your steatocrit and your stool test is high, that you have trouble absorbing your fats, this is not for you. It is not easy to maintain ketosis. So if this is hard for that person who travels a lot, but it can be done. It absolutely can be done. You, you know, you live on some macadamia nuts and some animal protein and eggs uh, and you can do it. Avocados are great, but they have carbohydrates. So you have to watch your consumption for that. But this is very effective for weight loss. It's really great for blood sugar. Uh, that's the, the main thing that I would suggest keto for. It's also really good for um, heart disease, believe it or not. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is. Alzheimer's disease, it also has a good benefit. Um, that good fat in the brain is very good. And it also will help with some um, acne as well and energy. And a lot of people find that their brain fog goes away being on ketosis. I just caution people with fiber, making sure you're getting enough fiber and being consistent uh, with your water so that you're hydrating your colon. I recommend the ketogenesis uh, for no more than 30, uh, for three months rather. So I think it's good to give your body a break. Um, I, there's lots of different opinions about it. People think that it can be a lifestyle and some people think it's short-term, but I see the best results if somebody stays on keto for three months and then takes a break a little bit and then can hop back on. I love that you're saying that because that is actually the next question I was going to ask you is for how long, because I think keto is probably one that more so tends to get recommended shorter term than some of the others. Um, and like you said, yes, there's so many different opinions, but that's great to know that you recommend three months. And then when you have people take a break, is that break typically a week or two, or is that break a couple of months? What do you find the most beneficial? Anywhere from two weeks to two months is a good enough time to take that break. I think also what you're saying about making sure that they're getting enough fiber and water, that's very important because as you mentioned, there's different types of keto too. I mean, you can do a healthy keto and then you can do, you can be in ketosis, but you're not necessarily eating foods that are as nutritious. So there's a little bit of a, a spectrum of the types of foods that you can eat. Exactly. And we do, I do see a lot, and there's, I think, some studies out there uh, to back this up, but I see it in my office a lot that people who have a lot of adrenal issues, if they have uh, a lot of stress, uh, typically women don't do well with keto as far as weight loss if they have adrenal issues, a lot of cortisol production. Uh, we don't see it working as well for women as a whole as we do for men. I don't know why that is, but it just seems to be the uh, situation. Interesting. I wonder if also possibly it's because women just tend to have more gallbladder issues than men, yeah. right? Like the three Fs. So yeah. um, maybe it's just the digesting of it that is a problem or sure. perhaps maybe metabolic typing. You know, I don't know how exactly it's split male versus female, but possibly maybe there's more males that are protein or fat types versus carb types. 
Sure. Could I'm be speculating, but yeah. 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 It could be. And then um, kidney stuff too. people with kidney issues are probably not the best candidate for keto. So uh, keto is, uh, you know, I know it's all the rage and there's lots of keto products in the market, but it is not for everyone. What about autoimmune protocol or AIP? Yes. Uh, it, I think there's a lot of confusion about this because it has so many similarities to like a paleo and a low lectin. So I'd love for you to talk about what the differences are and why this could be better or worse for someone versus some of these other ones. Right. So the autoimmune protocol or AIP is, I think it's great. I use this all the time in my office with people who are either newly diagnosed with autoimmune or have had autoimmune before and have never done it. They're having a lot of symptoms. I usually will throw them on the AIP diet. Now, this is an elimination diet. So it is intended for 30 to 90 days. So it's short-term, but it's pretty strict. So it's it's paleo, basically, it's paleo uh, restrictions. However, it takes it a few steps further. So there are no nightshades. We're removing all the nightshades. Those are all tomatoes of any kind, potatoes of any kind, with the exception of yams and sweet potatoes, no eggplant at all, uh, and no um, peppers of any kind, except for black pepper and goji berries. So those are the nightshades. So we remove the nightshades. In addition to that, as if that wasn't difficult enough, (laughs) we're removing some um, nuts and seeds um, during that and eggs, nuts, seeds and eggs are off the table in addition to the nightshade. So it is very limiting. So it is um, animal protein, vegetables, sweet potato yams and some good fats, but pretty much that's about it. But I cannot tell you time and time and time again. I just had another one yesterday uh, that somebody I work with that they go on the AIP and uh, they have Tourette's and some other autoimmune things and everything starts to quell when they go on AIP. So it really just cleans you out. It takes the potential offenders out. And again, it's it's uh, 30 to 90 days. Now, anyone can do AIP. Even if you don't have autoimmune, you're welcome to do AIP. It will do nothing but benefit you. It'll decrease your systemic inflammation. It'll help increase your good gut health. It'll decrease your blood sugars. Um, it really helps support all of those things. But what I would say is that This is definitely for somebody who's newly diagnosed with any autoimmune disease, doesn't have to be thyroid, but any autoimmune. And the whole goal here is to quell the inflammation. So when we have autoimmune, we have our TH17 from our Tregs, they start to activate and we get into a cytokine storm and we're creating antibodies and we're attacking whichever it is that we're attacking. So if it's the joints, it's uh, rheumatoid arthritis and Um, you know, Hashimoto's is the thyroid and and so on and so forth. So it quells that inflammation, those those attacks, and we want to get those antibodies down. So I'm really a big fan of AIP, even though it's very restrictive, you can really do this diet, uh, this eating lifestyle for 30 to 90 days, and you will see noticeable results. And what do you find when people start to reintroduce stuff? Um, It's, it's slow. And it depends what it is. So we don't really recommend anybody having gluten and dairy and soy uh, with autoimmune. So we don't really recommend reintroducing those. But if we started reintroducing nuts, everybody's different. So some people will respond and some people won't. 
Um, I recommend in my office, I do uh, further testing to find out what cross-reactivity people might have, because if you are gluten insensitive or gluten intolerant, and we see that in your stool test, then I'm looking to order what cross-reactivity you have. So, you know, we know gluten is is basically a, a pearl beads, right? There's 165 of them and there's different uh, pearl necklaces that we have. And so there are different amino acid strands, basically protein um, sequences that can affect. So you can be uh, responding to almonds or tapioca flour the same way you would respond to gluten. So we make sure that you are, um, you know, you are aware of what foods could potentially be cross reactivities. But anyone, um, if they have family history of autoimmune and they haven't been diagnosed, but they feel like they're not functioning well, um, I would recommend hopping on the AIP for 30 days to see if you feel better. That's great advice. I recommend a lot of that as well. And then what's nice is that when you do feel better, as most people will, when we start to introduce things back in, you can do it one at a time slowly, give it a couple of days, and then you can see what the reaction is. Because for some people, I mean, I love testing, but that's not an end-all be-all either, right? Because there's so many different pathways that we can react on. And then on top of that, not everyone can always afford all of the testing because depending on what we're doing, it could be thousands of dollars. So it is nice to be able to do this sort of elimination challenge. And then you can see for yourself, you can't see everything, but there's certain things if you're going to react, your body's going to tell you, and then you'll know. Yeah. And as you said, slowly one at a time and see if there's a reaction. Now, what about low lectin? Because that's something that has been around for a long time, but I think over the last couple of years, especially since Dr. Gundry has been talking so much about it in his books and some of this stuff, it's become even more popular. So I'd love for you to talk about that and the pros and cons and how that's different than the others. So low lectin really focuses on lectins, which are anti-nutrients. And I'll just give you a brief, I think your your listeners are very well versed at this, but uh, lectins are basically under the umbrella of anti-nutrients. And we all have uh, our ability, all living organisms have the ability to cope with any kind of stress or danger. And as humans, we can flee, we can bite, kick, scream, yell, call 911, but plants don't have that ability. So what they do is they have what I call a hard candy shell around their germ or their seed. And they um, it's a protective coating that is, they're called lectins. And um, these are trying to protect that, uh, that plant so that they are able to procreate and survive our two main goals as living organisms. And they're very hard to break down and they can cause a lot of inflammation, especially if there's a leaky gut, but they do lead to inflammation. So this uh, diet type removes all of those lectins or foods that are high in lectins. And they really focus on foods that are low in lectins to prevent the inflammation. We know that inflammation is the driver of disease. So I love this, that they focus on, uh, focus on inflammation. So here we're taking out like a lot of skin and seeds to tomatoes technically are not allowed, except if you take, remove the skin and the seeds, you're good. Um, squashes, cucumbers, all different types of butternut squash and things like that. Those are things that we would take out. Uh, what else would we remove? Dairy. Dairy is definitely not in and All legumes are not uh, permitted on low lectin as well as grains. 
So low lectins are um, the, the, the foods that we want to avoid for high lectins. Those are grains or grain-like foods. And um, so that's corn and gluten usually, but amaranth too, which is gluten-free and um, buckwheat, quinoa, uh, oatmeal, things like that. Some tropical fruits we stay away from, bananas and coconuts, dates, things like that. Dairy, uh, we stay away from most dairy. And then legumes, again, those are really, really high in lectins. We talked about the nightshades and some types of fruits. Um, they're select fruits. I have a whole very comprehensive list in my um, in my book. But um, we also want to stay away from cashews and peanuts. Peanuts are actually not a nut. They're a legume. But cashews are really, really high in lectins as well. And then some processed things and sugars and, and alcohols. There's specific alcohols that you can have. But uh, the whole goal of low lectin is to decrease that systemic inflammation. And this is great if you feel that, that the AIP is too restrictive for you. I mean, this is restrictive in a very different way. But you, if you feel that you, you have a hard time doing AIP, you might want to try low lectin because it really sort of gets you to the same place. Uh, and just a little bit differently. Right, from a slightly different approach. Yeah, because there are some things that are the same in terms of um, like the nightshades are not an AIP either, right? But then there are certain, like millet doesn't really have lectin, so people can maybe do that. And that sometimes helps um, versus I don't think it's allowed on AIP, right? Correct, exactly. Yeah. The grain, yes, you're right. So it sounds like that could be for almost anyone. Anyone that should be kind of mindful of this, could it harm, not harm, but, you know, be negative, I guess I should say no. for anyone. Yeah. There's really no negative impact for anybody except there's sugar alcohols that are allowed in low lectin. And that wouldn't be good for uh, the people with IBS or uh, SIBO. So that I would say you would have to avoid that. Perfect. And speaking of SIBO, because that's something that's so common and so many people have that, Yes. Let's talk about the low FODMAP. Um, and I think it's something that people may have heard about, but I think there's still so much confusion about it and exactly how it works and who it's for. So tell us more. So low FODMAP is, um, FODMAP is an acronym and it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, uh, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And basically what that means is these are carbohydrates that um, get fermented in the system and they absorb water. So they typically cause a lot of bloating and gastric upset in the system. So if you're a person that has chronic bloating, I would absolutely recommend that you hop on the low FODMAP diet. If you have been diagnosed with IBS or IBD, I would absolutely recommend the low FODMAP diet. This again is also another elimination diet. So this is about 30 to 90 days. And the stricter you are at the beginning, the better off you will be. So what we're trying to do is, is remove the offending foods that are causing the gastric upset. And we're trying to kill that bacteria that's in the intestinal lining and quell that inflammation there. So we're trying to stay away from these different types of carbohydrates that are going to continue to cause irritation. We stay away from those and then we eat foods. And this is very tricky because this is a little bit more portion restrictive rather than um, calorie restrictive. You can eat as much as you want, but you just have to eat a little um, different foods you can't eat all you want. Um, so for example, 
uh, cruciferous vegetables. So cauliflower, broccoli, kale, cabbage, Brussels sprouts. This is very what we call high in, in FODMAPs. And these high FODMAP vegetables uh, are going to cause a lot of gastric upset. So let's say week two or week three, you start to have one uh, cauliflower floret or you have one Brussels sprout. And then week four, you can start to have two. And then you get to a quarter cup and a half a cup and so on and so forth. And then a lot of this, and I always say this to people, is you do what works for you. Some people can eat avocados on on low FODMAP. Some people cannot at all. Some people can have a quarter, but a half will just wreck them. So uh, you really have to go according to what works best for you. Some people can eat cauliflower, but they cannot eat broccoli. So Mm -hmm. I always recommend uh, uh, individualizing this. And even though I give structure in the book about what to eat and what not to eat, and I talk about, I emphasize a lot about portions with certain foods. I mean, you could eat pretty much all the zucchini you want or all the spinach you want, but, and all the animal protein you want, but you really have to be careful with like artichokes or, or cruciferous vegetables or onions and garlic are out. So uh, those are different types of those have the carbohydrates that just turn into um, bloat for most people. Right. Yeah. And I love how in the book you give all of the specific structure and all of the lists so people have that. But I also appreciate you saying that you do want to be mindful about what works for you. And of course, this goes along with what else you're doing for the bacteria, right? For the SIBO or for the other dysbiosis. Because as you mentioned, this is really meant to be used at the same time. Well, it doesn't have to, but I guess typically I find it works best if you're using that when you're also doing some type of a GI cleanup, right? Whether you're using herbs or you're using other SIBO um, medications to help to eradicate the bacteria because when the bacteria is lowered, there'll be less to ferment the food, right? Exactly. Yeah. So this is not for everybody that I would not say, oh, hop on this if you feel like it. This is not fun. It's challenging. Uh, There are manufacturers that are now making foods. I was just at the natural food show and there were two manufacturers actually making food for low FODMAP. And some of the, I saw pasta sauce now that is made for sensitive stomachs without garlic and onion. So there is starting to be some more awareness about this, but this is a, a very common diet type that I will put people on when I work with them because people do suffer from chronic bloating. And, and for your listeners, if you're, if you're having chronic bloating, something's wrong, address it. Yes. Thank you for saying that because it's normalized all the time, right? right. I mean, you go to the doctor, oh, you're bloated. Well, you're just getting older. Oh, just right. lose a little weight. Oh, it's normal. Right. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. It's not just like everything else, right? You're tired. Oh, you're just getting older. Like, oh, you have brain fog. Oh, you just have a lot going on. (laughs) Exactly. You're stressed. You need an antidepressant. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) for sure. So it's just really good for everyone to remember that your body, as much as I know that it's frustrating and annoying really to have symptoms, it's your body trying to talk to you. And sometimes it whispers, but if you're not listening, then it's going to scream at you. So exactly. I say that all the time, your body's always communicating with you. Listen. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I think the good thing is that there is so much that you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that, you know, you have all these different diets and, you know, as you mentioned, like you detail all of that even more in the book, but then on top of that, there's also other things to rebalance your body and, to you know, really just make sure that all of the pathways are optimal. 
Now, a lot of the diets we've talked about so far are pretty high in animal protein. So then we have the opposite, right? With a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. And of course, there's many different reasons, uh, you know, some ethical, um, religious, you know, that people may be on those. But let's talk about that a little bit and what you feel are the pros and then the potential cons of that. I struggle a bit with vegetarian diet or the vegan diet because um, I'm all about protein, fat, and fiber. At the end of the day, every meal should have protein, fat, and fiber. That's what fuels us. And so it can be very challenging in a vegan or vegetarian diet to get enough protein. So where do we get our protein sources? They're from beans, nuts, and seeds. And that's great. Um, But like if you have SIBO, you're not going to do well on that diet. That's just a lot of lectins and a lot of FODMAPs that are going to create a lot of inflammation and a lot of bloating. But if you don't have those things and you eat, you know, maybe I should back up and really clarify there's different types of vegetarians, right? There are the very vegetarians who eat Oreos and and soda and pizza or uh, pasta and, and cookies, or there's the vegetarian who eats vegetables. So um, primarily, so uh, I'm talking about the people who eat primarily vegetables. Okay. So um, we don't, we, we, there's a lot of carbohydrates in beans, nuts, and seeds. And so if we have a lot, uh, we can tend to get very high levels of blood sugar and weight gain. And I know I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm a, a, a former vegan myself and I, I felt pretty good on vegan, except my blood work, my blood sugar levels just kept getting higher and higher until I finally realized it was all the, the, the beans that I was having in the grains. It wouldn't be a diet that is right for, for everybody. So this is, you know, I, can't, I don't want to say that it's not right for people with blood sugar, but you have to watch your blood sugar and you have to watch your consumption of carbohydrates. It's, we know that plant-based is excellent. I completely in agreement with that. And we know that it helps fight or possibly reverse or mitigate any sort of cancers and heart disease. We know that it's a benefit for that. So absolutely, I love plant-based for sure. This vegetarian diet is not really great for a person who has the gene mutation MTHFR. Um, MTHFR is that gene mutation that uh, prevents us from methylizing or processing either our B12 and or our folate, our B9. And so this is what we get B12 from animals. There really isn't much source other than maybe a little bit of nutritional yeast that we get B12 from. So this is not the best diet for somebody who has issues with B12. Now you can supplement with it. That's fine but it is difficult for that person. So I I recommend somebody take a look to see if you have that gene mutation to B12. But other than that, it is a great eating program. I I eat a lot of vegetables and I recommend 60 to 80% of your plate should be living foods that could be cooked, but from the ground and from a farm um, rather than a factory. So uh, I love that part of the vegetarian diet and it would be great for a lot of people um, to have more vegetables in their life. Again, so much for the people who are eating the, the, the pasta and the crackers and the potato chips. And, uh, that is not what I am really talking about. 
dairy, some, if you're vegetarian and you have dairy, you're getting some protein source there. So that's good. But I worry about the hormones and the the growth hormones and the um, antibiotics in that dairy. So what kind of dairy and can you even tolerate the dairy and absorb it? And then if you're vegan, you're really not getting any uh, at all. So we need a lot of fiber. Women need about 25 grams per day and men are about 38 grams. So it's important to get fiber and uh, you're probably getting that, you know, very efficiently in the vegetarian diet if you are eating tons of vegetables. So that's good. Um, Zinc is another thing that um, we need to get, but we can get that very easily in some dietary foods like pumpkin seeds are very high in zinc, um, but we get a lot of zinc from oysters and and shrimp and clams. So I would definitely recommend um, maybe even substitute or supplementing with zinc or eating a lot of pumpkin seeds. Um, And omega-3 fatty acids, really we get from fishes. So you might need to supplement with a fish oil or, you know, algae doesn't really kind of come up to my standards for that. So um, if somebody is not opposed to taking a fish oil, I would recommend doing that. Uh, And then just watch the consumption of carbohydrates and watch the soy consumption. I'm not a huge fan of soy. They carry isoflavins, which mimic estrogen, and 94% of our soy supply is GMO. So I know a lot of people use soy as a substitute, so I caution people with a lot of soy. But you can absolutely live a very healthy life doing a vegetarian diet or vegan diet um, if it is right for your health status. Right. Yeah. And I think the important thing is like you mentioned that you look at some of those nutrients and if possible, if someone has a functional medicine doctor or even a regular doctor that they're, who's more open to run labs, right? Let's check your iron. Let's check your B12. Let's check zinc, right? To see where it is, because then we might need to supplement. Sometimes we can eat, even if it's not a vegetarian diet, even just a paleo diet, right? But just because we eat something doesn't mean we're going to necessarily absorb it. So I think it is so helpful to have some of those labs so we could see, hey, what's happening here, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's why I do enzyme max, my digestive enzyme that has all pancreatic enzymes and, and hydrochloric acid and oxbile for fat absorption. As we age, we produce and excrete less and less. So you should know, you know, if you're having heartburn or things like that, you should, um, pretty good sign that you probably need a digestive enzyme. I usually give it to people who are like 45 and older because we just, we lose that capacity and to produce and excrete. Absolutely. I love enzymes. So I'm curious, what diet do you follow or have you gone through kind of the gamut and have you done them all at some point? You mentioned vegetarian before. Yes, I was pretty vegan for a while and then um, I stopped that and then I did some SIBO testing and found out that lo and behold, I had SIBO, uh, very common with thyroid. And so I did the low FODMAP diet for about 90 days. It really helped me. And then um, I've done AIP when I first found AIP and I had already known I was uh, Hashimoto's. I did AIP and I loved it. I thought it was great. It was very restrictive, but it is great. And now I do uh, paleo. So once you finish the AIP, you really start to bring in the, uh, the nuts and the seeds and the eggs. And so I follow pretty much paleo diet. I don't stray from that pretty much ever. I tried keto for... I don't know, maybe two or three weeks. And it wasn't good for me. I had a hard time getting into ketosis. I kept doing a urine test every morning. and I just couldn't get into the state of ketosis, no matter what I did. And uh, it just didn't work for me. 
So yeah, I've done and I've done low lectin. So really I've done all of these. Is there one that you felt the best on? I really feel good on paleo. I don't have any symptoms of any thyroid issues. And um, so I feel I thrive, but I also detox probably quarterly, maybe three to four times a year. And I always, it just reboots me. So it just, it just makes me feel good. It, it increases my energy, but I feel really good. I have my A game pretty much every day. So uh, I love paleo for me. That's wonderful. That's so great to hear. Yeah, I've done a lot of these as well. I do really well in low lectin, but I find that it's I don't have to do it all the time. I do it for a little bit, especially if I have any type of flare up with right. Hashimoto's. Um, and then I kind of go to paleo. A lot of times I can do just a gluten-free dairy-free with grains, but if I feel anything become off, then I always go back to low lectin. And I, interesting, I, I think I may have told a story at some point on the podcast before, but I um, had a flare up after my son was born and my thyroid antibodies were, I mean, through the roof, like over a thousand. And um, I did low lectin for a week and I was planning to do it for much longer than that, but it just so happened that I had to go to the doctor a week later for something else unrelated. I'd cut my finger and they needed to get some blood. And I said, oh, while I'm here, just test my thyroid antibodies. You know, not thinking that anything would change. It's been a week. My antibodies had dropped 600 points in one week. Like I wouldn't believe it if someone told me that, but I thought it was amazing. Yeah. So it works. We know that it works. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, everyone is different, obviously. So there are certain things that are going to work better for some people than others. And I think some people might be a little bit more sensitive to lectins than others. But for me, there is definitely something there. So that's always one that I kind of go back to if I feel like that I need it. Well, Risa, this has been so helpful. I love how you break it down. And for everyone listening, if you take a look at the book, there's so much more there. So if you enjoyed this conversation, there's a ton more info in the book about all of the different diets, the exact lists and plans. So you can really get into it and try it out and see what works best for you. Risa, for those that want to contact you or want to connect with you, where can they find you? They can find me on the website at Risa Grew Nutrition, R-I-S-A-G-R-O-U-X Nutrition. I'm on uh, social media, Risa Grew Nutrition, and my book Food Frame is online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and my website. That's, That's wonderful. Right. Well, thank you so much for all of the information. I so appreciate you being here, and I look forward to staying in touch and connecting soon. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing what you do. It's great that you are investigating these health concerns and getting to the general public. I think it's great. As you just heard, there are various therapeutic diets. And as Risa explained, there are some that are better geared for specific health conditions and concerns. The bottom line is though, we are all unique. And so in an ideal world, our diets should be too. It is very helpful to look at some of these main rules, so to speak, but it is also important to really listen to your body. I also wholeheartedly believe that with any diet, over-restriction, and as much as we may hear about it, is actually not key. We may need to limit things while we're fixing the gut, calming the immune system, and supporting the body, but the goal is not to restrict forever. We have to diversify our gut microbiome to be healthy. And the only way that that can happen is with a more diverse diet. It's not just about probiotics, as important, of course, as they are. There's more to this. For Anna, we started with a low lectin, low iodine diet to help calm her immune response. 
We then supported her gut and liver pathways while also optimizing her thyroid. This process takes a little bit of time. It's not overnight, but done correctly and in the right order. And by the way, this is something I actually teach in my step-by-step Hashimoto's program. When done this way, it is very effective. Once we completed that, she felt so, so, so much better. Her energy improved. Her IBS completely resolved. She even forgot that she used to have digestive symptoms just a few months ago. And also her thyroid antibodies came way down, which was super exciting to see. Then at that point, we started to slowly introduce some other foods. We added in one food at a time. This process also takes a bit of time, a month, maybe a little bit more, but it's so important to be patient here. Slow and steady is what I always say. And the great news is that she was able to expand out quite a bit. Now she's on a gluten and dairy-free diet, but she's able to have grains, she can have legumes, she can have other lectins. Of course, refined foods and foods that are really high in sugar are never best for overall inflammation and just the health of our bodies. So she does keep those low, but again, she can have the occasional treats. She can also use some more natural sugars like honey or dates or xylitol. So she certainly does not feel deprived. If Anna sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? You could share it on social. You could share it through an email. I would so appreciate it. And I'm sure so with the person that is having those issues. And as always, when it comes to your health ailments, no matter how frustrating or how consistent they are, please, please do not give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.